When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking fitness for humans and bird dogs with Jordan Wilcher. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 234. All right, we're talking to Jordan Wilcher today of the Human Predator Pack Mule team. We're going to talk a little fitness for humans and bird dogs, general season preparation, and we will get into that shortly. But I do want to thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these episodes and conversations coming your way. As a thank you for their support, patrons are eligible for bonus content, bonus episodes, Patreon giveaways, and those Bird Shop Podcast canned coolers and stickers couple quick notes on that we will have an upcoming giveaway at the end of this month for the dogbone hunter video library that'll be a one-year subscription to one patreon winner at the end of this month and coming up later this month on august 29th at 7 p.m central nick adair and i will be doing a live zoom room for both of our patreon memberships kind of kicking off the season a little preview and some discussion with listeners of our shows. Really looking forward to that, and all patrons are welcome to join us for that event as well. So you can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, a couple things to mention before we get into the conversation today. Remember, anybody listening can use the promo code birdshot to access the Dogbone Hunter video library free for 30 days. That's a free 30-day trial to the videos over at dogbonehunter.com with the promo code BIRDSHOT. 
So if you want to see a little bit more about what Jeremy Moore is doing behind the scenes with his dogs, you can check that out with the promo code BIRDSHOT. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, if you caught that, and directly related to this week's episode, if you want to check out the basic fitness protocol that the guys at Human Predator Pack Meal put together and Jordan and I will be discussing today, you can do so via the link in the show notes to this episode. Click that. You'll get all the information. You can sign up, download the app. You get two weeks free, two weeks of the program for free, and there's a discounted rate if you want to get the full four-week program and try it out ahead of the upcoming hunting season. Jordan and I will talk more about it on today's episode. And just know that you all have access to that program as listeners of the Birdshot Podcast. All right, and lastly, on last week's conversation, Noah Davis and I chatted briefly about earwigs, little insects we discussed that I have been seeing all around my property and office and seemingly everywhere I turn this summer. And I did hear from a couple listeners, I am not alone in A, seeing an increase in earwigs this year, and B, having some strange, creepy run-ins with these little guys. I got one email from a listener that I have to share. I think this takes the cake so far with respect to earwig confrontations. Subject to the email is earwig story. The listener writes in, Hey Nick, just listened to your podcast with Noah about blue grouse and had to share this story. I'm a harmonica player and I often have harmonicas out on my desk and spread randomly around the house. A few years ago, I picked one up and wailed a big bluesy draw note. And then in parentheses, drawing is sucking in rather than blowing out. I nearly choked and coughed something up from my throat and there running around in my palm was an earwig. Needless to say, I keep all my harmonicas cased now. Cheers from a chucker hunting fool out west. I love that. And if you know what an earwig is or if you've gone and looked it up since we talked about it on last week's episode, I think you can imagine how unsettling that would be to inhale one and cough it out. I have yet to have anything that intense happen. Although during the last week, a couple days ago, I was out in the yard doing my duties as a bird dog owner and picking up the deposits the dogs left in the backyard. I was using my poop scoop, which is one that you've probably seen, a little green metal scooper with tines and it's got a rubber handle that is kind of grommeted on, but there's like a little sleeve inside that rubber vinyl handle. As I was walking around, I kind of noticed something hit my finger, didn't pay much attention to it until it happened maybe once or twice more. And I kind of stopped and looked down and I set the tines down on the ground and earwigs started falling out of this little sleeve handle on the backyard poop scoop. And there could not have been less than 20 earwigs. I don't know how they were even in there. There's not that much room inside this little sleeve, but there could not have been less than 20 earwigs falling out of this thing one after another. And I was kind of, once I figured out what was happening, I was kind of pushing or moving around on the little handle sleeve and they would just keep coming out of there. I couldn't believe how many were stuck up in there. I have no idea if they accumulate like that or find places to hide and go in there. They're, they're kind of a nocturnal insect, but that happened as well within the last week. So I don't know how long earwigs are going to continue to have this kind of an impact on the lives of myself and the listeners, but we've all been put on alert. Check your cups, check your harmonicas, check your poop scoops. Make sure you don't unsuspectingly have a confrontation with an earwig. That's just a public service announcement here on the Birdshot Podcast. All right, that's enough of that. Let's talk fitness with Jordan Wilcher. He's a former guest of the show. We had him on earlier this year. 
kind of middle of winter. And Jordan and I talked at that time about hypothetically me starting a rucking program. And as you'll hear on today's episode, that has kind of become a very enjoyable part of my regular routine and exercising the dogs and myself to surprisingly good effect. And it's one small component of a general fitness program, which Jordan and I will discuss a little bit more in depth today. We talked plenty of bird dogs and bird hunting. Jordan's got a new dog as well. So that's kind of the beginning of the conversation. And then later it transitions into fitness and conditioning for dogs and humans alike. So just remember, if you want to learn more about it, you can sign up for that free trial program that Jordan and Todd have put together. You can do that in the link in the show notes. And either way, hopefully you take something from this conversation and maybe work in a small change or two to your daily routines to help better prepare and condition yourself and your bird dogs for the season ahead. All right, with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot Podcast, Jordan Wilcher. And you're back on the show. Thanks for joining me today, Jordan. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's I'm surprised anytime somebody wants me back. <laughs> repeat guests i love repeat guests obviously you know i like to interview new people but i think it's fun to you know once we have somebody on and get to know them a little bit to reconnect usually usually once a year is is kind of a i like that i like checking in with people just personally but it's fun to it's fun to kind of circle back and see where the what things we may have talked about and sort of where we are so it's a little bit shorter of a timeline for you we we had you on earlier this year talking fitness and we got you back on again as we are right on the verge of hunting season kicking off so we thought we would talk a little bit more bird dogs and fitness as it relates to upland hunting and getting ready for the season but first you were telling me about this book you were reading this morning and i was smiling because i have a tendency to do that i've got my eyes on a book that i plan to crack open because I feel it will set the tone, if you will, for <laughs> upcoming hunting trips. And the one I'm looking at is called Western Skies by John Barsness, who I think is a fairly well-known author. I have not read the book. It was recommended to me by Andy Wayman a year ago when we did the whole podcast. I don't know if you recall that, but we did a podcast on sort of what books are available that talk about sharp tail hunting, and that was one on his list. But you were reading an author that is well-known for writing about Western upland hunting, Mr. Benno Williams. Which book is that? Because I'm trying to figure out if I have a copy of it. Uh, It is called American Wing Shooting, a 20th century pictorial saga. Ah, okay, okay. It's a bigger book. Is it like, uh, does it have a green cover? It does indeed, yes. Okay, all right. So I know the book. I don't know if I, you know, I go on Amazon and look for old upland books and used stuff and you know if they're if i see a good deal which is pretty often i throw it in the cart and scoop it up but i don't know if i have that one i got a few of his books but it's so far so good it's you we said it's kind of shorter obviously picture essays but then there's some commentary and is it like kind of species specific or how is it laid out it's like it's um it's kind of a, a regional book so it goes over the various parts of the country um, the birds that are there, the, you know, kind of the dogs used. Yep. Um, so for, like you said, to kind of set the tone that sort of, for me, I would, before this, we're talking about it's the weather had cooled off and yeah. have a new dog and sensory stuff is strange. My wife, um, 
gets, you know, her diffuser stuff and she always does certain things in the fall and she plugged them in. It was like, cool, smelled like fall, new dog. And, and I thought, this is, this is the time. This is now. <laughs> you know? yeah. So uh, it's nice because it's just, you can kind of go through it in segments and um, read it here or there just for inspiration or excitement or, or what have you. And the photographs in it are awesome too. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'll have to, maybe before I hit publish on this episode, I'll have to go. Well, first I got to scan my bookshelf. Then I got to, then I might have to look on Amazon for a copy of that one. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I think it's something anybody could appreciate, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it will come as no surprise to anybody listening that, you know, that as you, pointed out the sensory stuff it's like this time of year and any time of year really whether it's spring or whatever but this time we're we're all kind of looking forward and anticipating but it's a it's like a temperature in the air and or a a scent on the wind and you can just feel it you know you can sense it i guess would be would be the best way to put it but it doesn't doesn't take much you know just a little dip in the temperature and we've been starting to feel that a little bit some cooler cooler mornings and evenings obviously it doesn't get quite as hot here as it does by you but today it's going to get up into the 80s we got some hot days left so it's that's okay it's summer doesn't need to be over just yet but we all know what's what's right around the corner I'm in the same boat. I have a lot of things to do in short order, so I don't want August to be over, but I will also be happily waving farewell once it passes. <laughs> so it sounds like you're working on a new dog kennel. Talk to me about that. Uh, yeah, just with the the two gremlins running around here um, yeah, and being gone or anything, want to make sure they have they can roam around and drink water and do whatever they need to do. Um, so I was. <laughs> driving home with that on top of my truck in a rainstorm yesterday, hoping I didn't get struck by lightning and getting that, <laughs> uh, getting that all put together. Um, I just, I got to level the level, the ground a little bit and get its final spot set up and, and put the roof on it. So I'll have my five-year-old accomplice hard at work with me today doing that. Nice. What, so, so is it like a kennel kennel kit that you bought? Um, yeah, it's a, uh, five by ten, you know, welded wire kind of deal. Yeah. And um, nothing, you know, nothing too fancy. Um, it's that, uh, what was it? It's like Retriever, I think, is the brand. It's pretty, it's a lot heavier than the cheap kind of stuff that I've seen floating around at Costco or wherever you might, I don't know, get that sort of thing. Is I don't that know. something is there that you a get standard? Well, is that something you get at like Tractor Supply or something? Because I I was yeah. looking into that quite a bit when I before I redid the the office bird chat studio here. It, yeah, it was from Tractor Supply. Okay. Um, I looked at a, you know I'm an analysis person. Yeah. I looked at a fair number of them, and um, it it just it's a lot heavier duty than the other stuff. So I think it'll. I think it'll hold up better. It's the, you know, the gate's really nice. All the hardware is nice and pretty burly. So, um, and it's, this will sound totally silly, but it's, I think it's less unsightly than chain link is. Um, yeah. Yeah. It kind of has, kind of has like vertical, vertical bars, right? Yeah. So it's a yeah. welded wire yeah, kennel. Yeah. Um, but chain link too, it's just, um, they can peel the edges up. I've had chain link kennels in the past and, yeah. um, they're more prone to 
misadventure, I feel like, than a welded wire setup. So that's what I did this go around. Yeah, I know some dogs have been known to, to I, not that they couldn't climb that one. Well, that one's probably got a roof on it, but some dogs have been known to climb chain link as well. <laughs> yeah, I my Brittany won't. The 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 new character, the jury's out on him. I, I don't think he will, but he certainly has the power to to probably hop, skip, and jump right over it. <laughs> well, we definitely we definitely are going to talk about the new new character before we wrap on the kennel though that so you said five by ten is it just like a single space where you have will you have both dogs in there like i'm just trying to get in how how will you use it that was a big debate of mine um whether to keep them separated or not Mm -hmm. i'll probably have one big space um in there because they they do fine together that if you can hear the scurrying around there practicing their version of grappling or something right now um (laughs) make sure to take their collars off obviously if they're in there together um but uh they 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 seem to do pretty pretty fine they're kind of they're bunk mates now they sleep in my office we call it their apartment so i think tentatively that's the plan but the cool thing about those kennels is because so it's five by ten um and you can buy extra panels so if you wanted to divide them um you you could do that pretty easily yeah and then um, so you could have, yeah, you could have I, two five by five squares or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So, um, we'll see, but I don't, I don't really foresee any, any issue with them other than, uh, you know, just never, probably never sleeping when they're in there. If they're in there together, that'd be the only thing. They're yeah. just constantly dinking around when they're together. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I can, I can hear them scurrying around a little bit. Yeah, it'll it's it, it'll never uh, it never stops. It's like all right, go outside and run around. But <laughs> so I'm guessing you don't you probably don't have a fenced in yard then if you're if you're going with the kennel setup. Is that correct? I I do have a fenced okay. in yard, um, but just extra containment then. Yeah, I've um, I growing up and stuff. I've had dogs do strange things in fenced in yards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wanting to, wanting to dig out or whatever, anything that you can think of. Um, I'm not a stickler for things getting torn up. My wife more is than yeah. myself. Um, but the, uh, just the, the possibility of them getting out is higher with the, it's just a wood fence, you know? So yep. if they get really determined, they can, they can leave the building. So, um, I, I would rather not have that. Yeah. I'm kind of pulling on that string a little bit just because, I mean, I think it's something, you know, that other, other bird dog owners have thought about. And I thought about it a lot a couple of years ago when we, when I kind of redid this office kennel and then we never had a fenced in yard. We, we kind of have a nice spot where we have little woods in the back and we don't have people right on top of us really. And so, but it was, I, I was reluctant to put the fence in, but I did. And I was considering before putting the fence and I was considering on just having sort of an outdoor kennel run on the outside of this building and then a dog door so they could go in and out like that. But we opted to just fence in the yard. We don't have outdoor kennels and worked out really well for us because I obviously work here in the office. So the dogs aren't just here sort of on their own all day. If they were, I probably would have to have some kind of, I did put in dog doors, but I actually don't use them. 
And that was a big, in hindsight, I kind of, I probably didn't need to put him in, but it was like when we were redoing things, it was like, well, now's the time to do it before you finish the walls and that sort of thing. Anyways, I, I have been very happy with the, the fenced in yard and then they just have kennels, kennels inside here. And so this, this office kind of works as the place that if I leave or go somewhere, I don't let them just run around in the fenced in yard either. They're, they're inside in here but they get a lot of out, outdoor time just as i'm in and out of here every day so different ways to do it but that that definitely has been a big uh success for us here with just having the fenced in yard and a place for the dogs to run around that's for sure yeah i think like you said it just depends on your situation and kind of your life experience and um i i had a dog actually as a kid get out um and she got hit by a car she she lived she was I think she was invincible. Um, but that's just one of those things that sticks with you, you know, um, you realize that's a possibility. And so, um, I always, you know, if I'm at my truck, letting the dogs out or whatever, putting their collars on or stopped off somewhere, I always tie them out. Um, yeah. Or just try to eliminate any of that possibility. And like I said, these dogs don't strike me as characters that would do such a thing, but, um, you know, just, like I can avoid that. So, um, might as well just make sure that there's no, uh, there's no leaving of any type happening. Yeah. It's, so it's, you know, it only takes a second for something to, to happen like that. And I think it's, yeah, there is a, per, a bit of a personality thing. Like I'm the same way where I, I'm using my, you know, my tie out stakes. And if I'm letting yeah. them out, not on a stake, it's, usually under supervision and then they're just going right back in the crate and if i if my mind needs to be elsewhere i mean it's just i don't really want the stress so i just want my dog safe and on a tie out stake and you know i some people do it a little bit differently and and that's fine too but that's definitely sort of how i do it as well yeah uh, it's they're unfortunate stories but there's lots of them i know really seasoned dog guys that their dogs have bolted and you know gotten hit by a car or or other things and um it can it can happen in a blink for sure so yeah i just just uh i hedge my bets toward you know easy place to make sure nothing happens now i'm as you as you mentioned that the dog that unfortunately got hit by a car that that was that was when you were a kid that wasn't i remember your first bird dog was the one that you called him the mayor right he he was everybody's best friend around town (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah max um in yeah. that yeah he well and it got me thinking so yes this dog was you know a dog we got in front of a grocery store kind of thing um cow dog mutt mm. and um she was she was an interesting character but i was talking with my brother and it's you forget things but we we had and my family didn't hunt or anything but we had a uh somehow we had a springer for a while as a kid Hmm. and um i remember thinking as a kid like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna be able to like hunt with this dog i just know it and that was obviously not at all the case um you'd let the dog out and she would you know head for the hills um (laughs) (laughs) she uh so and she same thing we had two we had a pair of dogs that they just they just wanted to run so much that um but that was, we were talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, remember that dog lady? She got, I mean, she got bit by a snake. She, 
So snakes and snakes and cars are on my list of things to avoid for dogs. <laughs> yeah. How are, how's the, are snakes, uh, what kind of concern are snakes in Nevada? Horrible right now. Really? Why, with the Horrible. heat basically? He, yeah, I always find them around water. I fish a lot and I always okay. find rattlesnakes around water. It seems like, um, there's so much water this year, me and both and my friends there, there've been way more snake sightings. It seems like this there this year than in years past. Um, they're they're pretty terrible this year. So, do you think I, that's uh, just a logical? I, I don't know if you know, but like well, I guess my brain goes to water source, probably more prey animals there, and that brings in the snakes. I mean, is it that simple? Do you think? Uh, I assume so. I um, I do know snakes do actually need water also, mm. um, which you don't ever think of that. I've never I've never looked into it to see exactly why but i i assume there's an element of that especially in the desert you know, the water source is obviously a kind of a funnel for all sorts of animal activity yeah i actually this time of year i i will see i was out on my trail run yesterday and it's pretty relatively common for me to see garter snakes out there which obviously are you know there's no danger in them but it's it's always it's just something a little unsettling when you're cruising down the trail and all of a sudden you see the ground start to move and this snake slithering away. And I jumped over a couple pretty good sized ones yesterday, but yeah, snakes are, I don't know. We, we don't, we don't hardly ever see them in the, during hunting and, and there's really no concern of like any kind of danger with snakes. So it's not nearly in the same way that you guys are aware of them, but snakes are just uh, they're, they're a little bit different creature. <laughs> Yeah, and rattlesnakes especially, they don't they don't try to get out of your way. Right. I mean, they're not trying they're not out there trying to mess with anybody, but they they don't move out of your, their way. They just they just coil up and they'll sit there and they, they don't really make noise until you're about to step on them basically. Yeah. Um so it's it's always a bit of a a bit of a harrowing moment when you are about to step on a rattlesnake. So, we're not as bad as some places, but um, there's places in Northern California that are 10 times worse than where I'm at. But So in that same situation, if you're, you know, if you're going out for a trail run, is that, you know, do you have to avoid areas or do you have to just be super vigilant looking at the ground or how does that work? Um, I, I mean, I literally avoid certain areas entirely. So yeah. everything that I've been doing with my dogs is above 8,000 feet right now. Okay. So there's, I don't have to worry about snakes. Um, you don't have to worry about as much of the sharp seed bearing type vegetation either. Okay. So it's just an easier, less mental stress than, than putting the dogs down on the ground. And I see people running dogs and things this time of year and at, in the sagebrush and stuff. And while most of them are probably fine, it's, just the same thing, simple risk mitigation thing. I just take them up high. Mm -hmm. So yep. that's, that's what I do just from my own experience. Um, yeah, got yeah, it. Just make it easy. Well, let's talk about this, this new animal you've acquired <laughs> and uh, remi <laughs> remind us, of, remind us of your other dog, the Brit, and then talk about the new addition. So uh, Matilda is my other dog. She's a, uh, there we go. Uh, yeah. He's a, she'll be two in December. Um, she's a little red and white Roman Brittany. Um, 
from Utah, from a place called Tim Fritz. And so this will be her second season. She's got her puppy season under her belt and did, did really well last year. And this year we have a new, we have a new face. Um, we have a, an English setter, in the naming department. My five-year-old is dubbed him Charlie. Charlie. And he is, I got him from, uh, UB Giberson. He's, um, He's on the old Instagram as the hippie uplander, which people probably yes. know him more readily by. Um, but it the the genetics and the dogs are all actually out of a kennel called Skedaddle Setters, which is in Janesville, which is only an hour from me. Um, so it's kind of a funny roundabout way. I was trying to get a setter from them, and it didn't work out with the, the had had some issues with um, with the litter. And uh, this this kind of ended up working out. So I got my my skedaddle setter by way of Utah, essentially. Okay. And where where's UB out of? Do you know? He is he's he's in Utah. He's somewhere um, in the southern, I think the southeastern part of Utah. Okay. Um, I don't know where exactly. I had a friend that was on a road trip, and she actually picked the dog up for me. So he was kind of a, I'm not sure exactly what the story was, but he was a, he was a holdover from a litter that he had had in the spring and he really liked this dog and didn't kind of, um, he was careful in his selection about where the dog went because he, he likes him that much. Mm. So, um, Charlie is, Charlie's four months old now, um, a little over. So he's. He's in his full-blown puppy stage of life right now. Yeah, he's got some physical maturity to him a little bit. He does. He does, and he's still sorting that out. He uh, he's kind of funny because he's really, really powerful. I'm excited to see what he's going to be like when he's grown up. But he um, he's not quite totally aware of his physical capabilities you know he <laughs> thinks he can't jump and then he jumps four feet straight in the air kind of thing um it's it's uh it's it's pretty funny but he's been a he's been a really fun dog so far for the for the little bit that i've had him yeah yeah i don't i don't um know you be uh it's is it everett giberson i'm i'm gonna mess up his name but yeah, the hippie uplander, as you as you pointed out. But I I follow his account, and I usually I'm looking at beautiful scenery and beautiful bird dogs. So I always always like that kind of stuff, anyways. But I have seen photos of Charlie, and he is quite a quite a specimen of a dog. Very very good looking young English setter. I'm uh, I'm excited for you because yeah, he he looks like he's got all the pieces. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. Um... UB is a as a solid uh, a guy as they come. Super honest, transparent, easy. Does a really good job with his dogs. All you know, you can see all these things on the internet, or right. people can kind of appear how they want. Um, he is a guy that is as he appears. You know, um, he gets out a lot. He, he takes his dogs. Takes good care of his dogs. Um, and obviously, getting a dog that he had for a few months, you can you can really tell. So, um, the dogs that he, he actually drove one of his dogs up to Janesville to skedaddle for the breeding. Um, so he's, 
he's uh charlie is a unit he's he's a sight to behold um it's just interesting how it all worked out because i was i was supposed to get another brit um right and that didn't that that didn't that didn't pan out and um and then like i said i was on the list for a setter and i, I really wanted a female um and that, that didn't pan out and then this ended up working out um so it's kind of yeah sometimes i think dogs kind of fall in your lap a little bit and right this was an easy uh transition so that's been i'm really 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 excited yeah that's funny i was going to ask about that because I, I remember one of the things that kind of connected you and i back late last year was we were sort of we we get we just sort of connected on instagram and social media and you know, you were looking at my young set, my orange and white set of rows, and I saw the Brits, and we were going back and <laughs> forth, and we talked about, you know, kind of how we're both looking over the fence at, I'm looking at Brits, and you're looking at setters, and and obviously we <laughs> we like both dogs, but now here you wound, you wound up with your setter. Is there is there anything, I guess, coming from the Brit and looking at the setter, is there anything you're thinking of as far as, like, you know, what is – like or questions you have, what is going to be different, or are you looking to see anything different out of the setter versus the Brittany? You're just kind of taking it with an open mind. Um, mostly taking it with an open mind. I obviously I talk to the breeder a fair bit, asking about, you know, hey, what do I need to kind of look for in these dogs? And basically, he said, do the do the same things you did with your Brittany. He'll be an easy easy dog. Yeah, they. My Brittany, it's, it's hard because Britneys are so all over the place, um, in terms of what they're bred for, what you get. And I, I'm, I really like mine and she, she was really easy. I mean, she started pointing birds at four months and just very sure footed and aware. And that's one thing I've noticed a little more in, with, um, with Charlie, the setter, he's, he's got a lot of horsepower and he, he likes to use it. Um, but his, you know, he's still figuring out what stuff is, you know, you can't run full tilt across a ditch and magically float to the other side. (laughs) Um, whereas the, the Brit was, she was more aware, but at the same time, I think part of that is she's a little more cautious, um, because Mm -hmm. this dog is, has, he has not an ounce of fear in his body, um, but he's he's not a he's not a kind of in your face dog. He's real gentle and sweet, yeah. but he if you want to talk about cutting a horse loose, that that is him. Um, so it ought, to, it ought to be interesting. They're they're different in that respect quite a bit, but super high bird drive. In your conversations with like breeders or any or like, have you heard that? female dogs maybe mature a little bit quicker than male because like some of what you're saying sounds like things that i've wondered and pondered and i feel like i have heard that that a female dog can and i know we both had kind of similar first seasons with our younger female dogs as well and so i just i wonder if there's anything to that where the the young male dogs just yeah he's got the he's starting to get the the power and the physical maturity but a little bit sort of mature. I, I really don't know and haven't seen enough dogs, but I know I have heard that. I, I've heard that. And same thing. It's been one of those things that I think is kind of anecdotal. Um, yeah. 
so do I know that to be true or not? No, but have I heard that? Yes. Yeah. Um, I also think just they're all, they're all just different each dog. Um, and so he's, like I said, he's a real high power blasting guy, but he's just, um, he just wants to find birds. That's the, that's the reason he is, um, that's the reason he's doing what he's doing. He kind of, that's all he cares about for the most part. And then when he's home, he's just content to be a dog. So, um, just, to just going to be an interesting thing to, to see kind of him really get his feet under him this year. Yep. So at four months old, has he been introduced to birds? Has he had wild bird contacts, intro to gun, that kind of thing? Where's he at training wise? Yeah. So, uh, UB did a good job with him. He, cause he has another pup from that litter and he basically took them to do kind of the same stuff. So sure. he's pointed some pigeons, had some blank gun and stuff. And then, uh, as it's been cooling off here and getting closer to the season, I've been, I've run my dogs obviously. Um, so he's been on, um, he's actually pointed some a variety of wild birds nice. um this year so just and that's obviously just in the last couple of weeks um and then we'll do basically my next couple of weeks are just making sure he's solid with the gun um and then off to the races so he his bird drive is so high i just i don't think he'll care about anything going on in the world around him at all. Um, and that's the breeder said too. He said that dogs will go through gun conditioning really fast, just especially if they're driving really hard to the birds, which he, he is. Um, and he, he looks really good while he's doing it too. (laughs) Yeah. So I have no qualms with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically our big focus is, he points and like we talked about in the last episode i a dog pointing birds at this point is not something i fret over um mm-hmm. but just making sure he's he's comfortable to hunt and that we're not going to create any problems because i'm not a great dog trainer so buying good dogs is my is my out yep that's that is one <laughs> way that guys like you and i can hit the easy button that's for sure yeah <laughs> relatively buy, buy good dogs yep. yeah buy good dogs and then just just hunt a lot and see see what happens you know and then make your decisions from there yeah very cool well so the other one of the other thing that reminds me one of the other things that we talked about which was kind of cool in our last conversation was sort of how i think kind of we had gone from dog one to dog two and how that process especially in that early pointing dog stuff first season like deciding when to shoot and when not to shoot and really sort of arriving at the conclusion that you are you're reading the dog the dog's behavior and just had a much better understanding of sort of when the dog's doing what it's supposed to be doing versus when the dog's doing something that you might not want to reward so uh, based on that like I'm, I'm pretty certain you won't be too stressed about your first hunts this year with with that dog but talk about a little bit about what you're maybe hoping to see and kind of how you're going to go going about some of the first hunts with Charlie. Oh, geez. Um, you're, you're right. I won't be too stressed. Um, <laughs> other, <laughs> other than keeping them healthy. Yeah. That's kind of the, my number one thing I, I worry about more and more as time goes on. 
I shouldn't say worry about it more, but focus on it more. Um, I don't want them getting too hot. I want their feet in shape. Yeah. And so, so they can enjoy it too. Um, I want to go enjoy my hunt and not be a basket case about anything. So I like them being in good shape and, and them not being miserable in any way. Um, so with him, (laughs) the most interesting part is, man, the dog with a tail, their intent is, is really easy. (laughs) It's a lot easier to tell. Yeah. Um, I, I sent you a picture of him when he's, there's no mistaking what's going on with Charlie. I mean, he's super intense style. Whoa. Yeah. Head up, um, tail straight up, just like a stone. So that, um, that portion is, is pretty interesting because you look at it and go, Oh, okay. Yeah. You're on, you're definitely on point. (laughs) Um, and there's no, and I mean, he just doesn't move. So, once we get into some running birds and seeing how that all plays out will be interesting because I went through that arc with the the Brittany last year and um, like you said, seeing what their intent is, I see a lot of things where people, they, they have the dog point and they don't want it to take a step and I've had that behavior result in me not killing birds because the birds ran 60 yards away versus the dog learning how to kind of stick with them and pin them down. Um, so just, just waiting and seeing what he's like. And my, I, I don't want to get a really high expectation for him, but I am very optimistic. He's going to have a fantastic puppy season based on what I've seen from him. Um, he's, he's staying in front of me for the most part. He runs to, um, man, and he'll he'll tear across an open space and look for terrain features. Yeah. And with that being said, I'm like I said, I'm not I'm not too picky. So if he's doing that, I think we're just gonna have a we're gonna have a great time this year. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And and having having two dogs like that is nice because you can kind of you know your day gets at least I recall like just. When you're running the old dog, it's it's a little bit different mentality, and not that your other dog's old, but she's a little bit further ahead on the timeline. You know, you just have, you're in a little bit different headspace, and then then you run the the younger, less experienced dog, and you're and you change things up, and it's just fun. It's fun to see that progression, and I think based on yeah what you're seeing what you're seeing already, it's gonna there's gonna be some excitement this fall, and how it'll play out, nobody knows, but I know you guys will have fun doing it. Yeah, that's the best part, and nobody. Nobody knows. And like you said, I can, I can put my Brittany on the ground. And even though I know she's young, I know that she's going to, she's going to point birds and try to get them killed. Whereas Charlie is going to be, he's going to be figuring that all out. I think he's going to be doing that just because he's hardwired to do it without necessarily having a full understanding. Um, But, but yeah, the, the kind of mental bandwidth required for one dog versus the other is, is a little different. Yeah. So it'll be fun. So leading up to the seat, we're going to, we're going to eventually, we're going to kind of transition into fitness here. And I want to talk a little, maybe a little bird dog fitness as you alluded to there, but your, your first hunt, well, I think it's going to be your first hunt will be for sharp tails. Is that correct? Yes. Sharp tails and hunts. Have you done a hunt like that before? I have not. No. Okay. So it'll be your first, first time heading to the prairie country and Jason early season sharp tails and hunts. Yeah, this will be trip one, and as I'm kind of looking at the years ahead of me, and 
I think that's how I'm going to be spending my my time more so than doing as much big game hunting as I'd like to travel and follow dogs around. Well, so conveniently, you just doubled your dog power. So I can tell you that'll help this year. Conveniently. <laughs> yes. I, well, I needed to, Yeah, <laughs> like I have to, I have to get in. I don't like getting them close together, but I just, the situation I'm in right now, I have to, um, don't want to run the other dog to death, you know? Yep. What are, what, what's on your mind as far as thinking about that hunt, you know, having not done it per se, what are you thinking about as far as habitat, what to do, how to do it, questions you have, anything? It, there's so many unknowns for me. Um, in these kind of situations, this from past experience in life, when you try to get everything nailed down and figure out what you think your problems are going to be, everything but that ends up being a problem. Sure. Um, so I, uh, I'm not too too bent on that i obviously i have friends up there and i have some pretty good intel on general areas and some of the you know basically find finding water um water and bugs is is high on the list but more more than that i I know there's going to be a lot of people up there um and i like to get away from people a little bit and i would take a less bird dense hunt to feel like I was on my own, mm-hmm. um, then, then be around other folks. Not that I don't like other people. Just when I'm hunting, I kind of just want to think about my dogs and, and walk behind them. I don't want to be worrying about where other people are, what their, where their dogs are at, what they're doing, what their hunt plan is. So that, that's probably the, the forefront of my mind. Um, and then we have a loose plan, me and my buddy of where we're going to stay and where we're going to hunt. And in terms of uh habitat and stuff same thing you, you can theorize and picture it and but until i get there just kind of go on the go on the gut feeling of look for a couple elements and yep put some dogs on the ground and see what happens go for a walk yeah yep i was gonna say part of my strategy a little bit with um a new area in any kind of hunting is I try not to overextend myself. Um, so there'll probably be a lot of some shorter walks, shorter loops, just to kind of, um, see what's there and, and spot hop a little bit in the beginning. Um, that even big game hunting, if I'm in a new spot, I won't, I won't, I'll try not to overcommit to an area where you're driving for, you know, hours and hours and hours down a dirt road just to see this one little thing. And then it doesn't pan out. Um, yeah. cause I've, I've done that many a time before and I'll still do that at least once this year. Um, I, I know it and it won't work out, but for the most part, if it's a really big trip or something, that's, uh, that's something that I'll do. That's interesting. Cause I, I feel like my tendency would be to like, I would have to, I'd have to be intentional about spot hopping. And I, I like the idea behind it, you know, seeing a little bit more ground and try to see if you can find where those variables come together by increasing your odds by hitting a few more spots where my natural tendency I think is to kind of you know what maybe I'm looking on onyx maps and and I I'm building it up in my mind and I find this you know Valhalla of of sharp tail habitat and (laughs) and here we're gonna go for a go for a huge hike and you know yeah you can get burned on on that kind of thing so I think it's 
that's an interesting way to think about it. Probably a pretty good strategy when hunting a new area. Yeah, I like you said, you can get burned on it, and I have, and I still, I still will. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'll, I'll look at something and go, man, I want to check this out. And I mean, I did it, I did it last year when in this huge drive with a friend, and I, I asked him, I said, do you, you know, what do you want out of this day? Do you want to get into birds? Because I know I spots I could take you, but it's late in the season, <clears throat> or we could swing for the fences and we could, we could try this and you know, that's, uh, you, you lose connectivity, you lose onyx, you can't, you don't know exactly where you're at, you're one canyon off, there's no birds there, it's a huge drive, and um, like I said, I'll, I'll still do that, I'll probably just do that more by myself rather than drag anybody with me, um, so they can get into birds for sure, but that, uh, that's definitely a strategy I'll use, and then just, just getting the dog used to you know, I'll run them one at a time, probably for the, for the duration, maybe depending on what it, what things look like, I'll put them both on the ground, but, um, just, you know, get them each some kind of bouts of run time. So that'll, that'll be my plan for now. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't fully know, but yeah, that's my tentative plan. Well, like you said, you can, it's good to be prepared and, and have some plans in place, but you got to go with the flow a little bit too. And, um, you're not going to script everything out. That's, that's not, that's not wild bird hunting anyway. So, but I, I was going to ask about the, does your buddy have a dog that he's bringing? He does. He has a Brittany that's, um, going to be eight, I think eight months old. Okay. Um, so you guys and then have... he has an, he has an older dog too, but he's not going to bring him on the trek cause he's, I think last, last year was his, probably his last season other than maybe a couple short kind of easy hunts. Yeah, so you'll have three dogs. Three very young dogs and two people that don't know what they're doing. So what could go wrong? It sounds like a recipe for a good time. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it'll be a blast. Yeah, that's that's one thing that, I mean, I learned that, obviously, dog power is kind of a thing that comes up, especially, I think, in that early season Western hunting. Um, it's definitely something to be, and I actually had a, had a buddy ask me the other day, you know, he wants to go out and hunt sharp tails and it's, he only has one dog and was kind of asking me if he could, he could do that trip by himself with one dog. And I, we haven't fully got into it and discussed it yet, but I mean, that, that would be challenging. You'd be, you'd be somewhat limited, but you could, you can do it. It's just, it's just how much do you want to commit to traveling and how many days, just to go to go get a taste of it you could do it but having more dogs and then running them you know that's always a conversation for our group when we go is all right what are we going to do to how are we going to manage the dog power are we going to hunt two guys and one dog all day or you take one dog i take one dog we go hit separate ridges you know there's all kinds of different ways to slice it and dice it and some of it is i think some of it is weather related if you know it's you know if it's going to get 85 90 degrees or whatever that day you may you might only get one one good walk in the morning so each take a dog right. and, and go hit a spot and then you you kind of know the dogs are going to be resting for the rest of the day so it's it's something you kind of game plan and manage throughout the trip but again you you easily could burn up all your dog power in a hurry out there if you're not thinking about it which i guess would be the takeaway 
Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it would be tough because people are coming from such different places and their dogs are used to such different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so m- managing that, like you said, seeing, because I really don't know what their capacity will be. I know what the Brittany's capacity is um, in the stuff I hunt here. And so for her to do um, 20 plus miles is no big deal in a, in a couple hours, but what that's going to be like in the, and translate into some flatter terrain. And, um, you know, she does hunt early season is still pretty warm here. So I don't, I don't fully know exactly what that's going to be. And I think like you're saying, having just a mind to manage that is, um, is important for everybody to have a good time because even two dogs for, you know, a couple of days of hunting is not, it's enough. But I think you have to be smart about it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think you you bring up a good point too. That again, it does depend on sort of where you're coming from. Sort of what is the baseline level of fitness and conditioning? And we can kind of segue in here. But you know, your dogs maybe. I think it's I think it's hunters coming from the east like myself, where you know we're not. My dogs and I are not going out and running ten to fifteen miles very very regularly. And that's not to say that other people out here aren't doing that but our base level of conditioning is we're kind of, we're running in in the woods more this time of year right. and so the distances are not as great but it's you know it's good conditioning but it's it's real easy for a dog to go out there and cover 5 10 15 20 miles or more and that kind of that kind of distance is something that a lot of dogs are not doing until they get out there and you, that's what you need to be prepared for. And that will obviously sap a lot of energy out of the dog. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because, and I think that's probably the most beautiful thing about GPS collars yeah. is you can get such a, a good idea of what you do versus what your dog does and kind of how to gauge that. Um, and I think taking, um, taking a dog for 
some hunts, kind of longer ones where they learn how to pace a little bit Mm -hmm. has been helpful. Um, because the Brit hunting by herself, you know, she'll pace herself pretty well to hunt all day. Um, you know, she's, she's a small dog, so she's not going to cover the ground that a setter or a pointer or something will, but she, you know, she'll, she'll get going pretty good. And like I said, in a, a couple hours, she's typically around the 20 mile mark or so. And that's not a, it's not a huge tax for, for her granted if you're doing that days and days and days in a row, yeah, that's, um, that's a little bit different of a, of an animal. So I'm, I'm mindful of that, but, um, just getting an idea of what they can do, how they are the next day. Um, the GPS color is just, a that's a great, great tool for that. At least for me. Yeah. Yep. I would agree. It, again, it gives you, gives you something specific, to kind of attach to your observation at the end of the day. Okay, dog did 20 miles today, and this is the sort of physical condition it's in. I, I mean, I think that that just plays into basic awareness and observation. You mentioned foot toughness, and then just I'm thinking base level of conditioning. What does your regular routine look like at this point in the year? And then are you are you doing now, or are you going to do anything different as we lead up to September? I'm, I won't do anything different, um, with Charlie, he's still really young. So getting him, um, just out and about as much as I can. And I like to, everybody will have different opinions on this and I'm not, I, who is right. I'll never know. I could totally be wrong. Um, but I, I like, I like letting them run off leash um and just and doing their thing and figuring out how to you know i'll I'll let him drag a check cord or something um but a lot of the time he's far enough away it it doesn't matter that he's dragging a check cord um right because i'm not going to be able to grab the end of it from 200 yards away yeah um so I, i like to let them figure out how to be in terrain um just going uphill going downhill going through um like right now we've been up up high a lot so going through um blown down timber just navigating terrain on their own yep um just to for them to understand where there's obstacles and where they need to slow down and um because i'm i've had dogs run through barbed wire fences you name it um so i just like them to build that awareness i guess and then um I, I, with the Brit, I, I'll run her next to my bike actually with the younger dogs. I won't do as much of that just because I don't want them have you ever, they'll get crazy next to a bike. Every dog I've ever had, they will run so hard. It's just not even, (laughs) it's not even funny. So yeah, I usually wait till they're over a year, um, to do that. And I do think there are some, there are some concerns around, you know, I think, I think free running young dogs is good and you want to manage duration and load. And I, I know that it isn't just a free for all you do want it. You do want to make sure that you're not running a young dog for really long durations and that, you know, that'll vary based on who you're talking to. I feel like, I feel like I've heard something like, um, when they're real young, like, you know, Charlie four months, like it's like, 
10 minutes for every month old they are. So like you wouldn't want to run him more than 40 minutes and that, and that goes, it obviously increases as the dog ages, but then also when they're growing and developing, you know, those joints and stuff, you know, running alongside the bike, I think they're probably better off free running, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So it's a mix, right? Because you have a, you have a battle to fight with a young dog is walking them on a leash going to be enough for them no is it good for them for other reasons sure yeah but is it enough for them to get them in shape no even me running i i can't run at a rate that's going to be right great for him he's not even going to be running so um but that is a good point i guess it's it's within reason and you kind of have to look at you got to look at your dogs and you kind of have to get an understanding of them Charlie will run and that's usually about what we do right now is 30 to 40 minutes off leash. And, um, I, I will leash him after that, even if we're not done because he won't slow down. Yeah. Um, so I'll leash him and walk him back to the truck. Um, and also I just like to get in that habit because if I'm getting close to my truck or whatever, if there's a road nearby or something, I, I just like to, uh, same thing it's put, a good put him on the leash and, to have in place yep yeah and but he's a dog where my my brit when she gets hot or she's she she knows when to conserve energy um she's she's figured that out a bit um she'll find shade that kind of stuff charlie is um he just wants to put the put his right foot on the pedal as hard as he can <laughs> so um uh, which i love about him but also i don't want him getting himself into trouble yeah, so manage, 30 yeah. to yeah, 30 to 40 minutes and, and where we're going, we're um, pretty much it's all all on a hill. It's not like it's nice and flat. So they're 30 to 40 minutes of them running uphill is um, for me is I feel like they get a good enough jaunt in and then we get in the habit of I leash you and then we walk back to the truck and and water. Um, yep. And I do like to see, too, when at what point they'll want to come in for water. Um and uh, Charlie, Charlie does not care about coming in for water within the forty-minute time span. He is not, he does not need it. He does not want it. He just wants to, he wants to explore and and put the throttle on the uh, the maximum setting. Yeah, that's it's interesting. The you know the obviously the differences in sort of where you're located and where I'm located and how you kind of you know you have to sort of figure out how to do it based on what your terrain topography resources you have available. And I, like you have, I've experimented a little bit with kind of, uh, on the side of the bike. I did that with Hartley quite a bit side of my mountain bike. And, and I never, I'm trying to think if I ever, I never really roded them like with a harness for that strength building. And, and I would say that I'm still kind of interested in that, but the routine that I have, pretty much developed and stuck to with my dogs involves a lot of a lot of free running in in wooded woody vegetation because that's what we hunt the most obviously and so whenever whenever I can that's what we do and and it usually like you said kind of for us I like to load the dogs up in the truck take a short jaunt somewhere unload you know kind of going through all that routine all those little things are helpful for sort of training the dogs in and they obviously pick that up really quick my dogs are you know three and three and nine so it's they're not necessarily learning anything new there but it's just part of our routine and i think i think there is something to be said about 
as much as you can run them in cover that is similar to the cover you will be hunting. Um, that's certainly a benefit. Not everybody has that right out their back door or the availability to do so. So you kind of got to make do, but I guess I consider myself lucky to be able to run the dogs in the woods as much as they do. Cause I think there is a level of spatial awareness and, and just stuff that comes with repetition and being in that kind of cover that really helps them in the long run. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just good for them to, they, you know, like we're, we're getting your collars, we're getting your stuff. You guys are going to get your kennels. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you know, you're going to ride in the truck for a bit. We're going to get you down, put your collars on. I'm going to release you. You're going to go run. And then when I call you back in, it's time to, you know, it's time to go back and do that in reverse. So, um, you talked about roading dogs on a, on a bike and my Brit is now to where I would do that with her. Um, I, I like you're saying with every them growing and everything, I'm more conservative on that, but I haven't roded her yet. I, I, uh, I just have her run next to the bike. Um, and that she's got that sorted out good. Um, and I'm interested to see that becoming more popular because I don't know if I ever sent you, I, I used to do that and I had this like totally homemade setup um, <laughs> that I had, that I had put together and I used to rode my two dogs like that. And it was a, an absolute blast. <laughs> was it, it was, it was off of a bike. Yeah. So yeah. Did I mean, you have like a, like a forked thing going off the front or something or. Yeah. I, I literally made the whole thing. I had an idea one day and I, there was a, repurposed old like um tie down straps and made this bungee connection thing that went through a pvc pipe so when it when it fell down in the in the front you know it didn't tangle up my front wheel yep, and, yep. and send me over the handlebars um and they figured it out so fast and it was just a <laughs> it was really a really fun thing i'll send you a i'll send you a video later but I see that increasing in popularity and they have these cool antenna things now to keep your lead out of your tire and, yeah. um, you know, harnesses and all that stuff or different companies are making them now. Yeah. Um, there are some, there are some cool things. Like if you don't have the ability to free run your dogs and you need to come up with us, there are some really neat things. I've looked into a bunch of them. I really wanted to get one. Have you seen those kick bikes? We might've talked about them. I don't know. I have seen them. Um, I don't know that we talked about them, but I do okay. know what you're talking about. Yeah, those things. I, I, I actually had a listener email me or contact me at one point, I believe, and said that he had one and he loved it. And I, I'm not surprised. They're just, it's kind of like a scooter, but they, and I'm, I'm blanking on the brand. I'll have to go look. But if you, if you look up, like start Googling bike joring with dogs, yeah. and kick bike or something, you'll come across this brand, I'm sure. But it's, basically like they have like an off it's like an off-road scooter where you've got good mechanical disc brakes i think and obviously a way to attach the dogs but then your feet are kind of hovering above the ground so you the the obvi the obvious benefit is that you're not going to be going over your handlebars and toppling off of a bike where you're more upright whereas this thing you're kind of standing and you can you can get your feet down on the ground in a in a bad situation real fast but one of those things i would love to try one of those but i've just never wanted to put down the money for one <laughs> yeah i uh i i think that would be really fun too i like the i i do like the bike i mean i understand you could probably have a gnarly crash if you're paying attention to the dog it's pretty easy to see if they're going to do anything mm -hmm. 
too outrageous. Um, and having, having a bike with good brakes, you, you see them start to veer or something and you just, you know, give the brakes a whack and they, they quickly figure out their, their lateral limits. Um, yep. and that, um, and then you can, depending on what, you know, kind of what the terrain is and stuff, you know, you can, you can pedal and take some of that load off of them. And I guess you, you could with a kick bike too, just not to the same extent. Right. Right. Um, but either way, it's um, they probably have electric kick bikes now. Who knows? I haven't looked in a while. <laughs> no, you're I, you're probably right. Everything has <laughs> gone that route. Right. Everybody I see riding a bike is it's um, it's like they're all electric. It's it's like all of the people that ride a bike for leisure. I feel like I see all of them are electric, yeah. and then all of the people that have to ride a bike for transportation, I see. It seems like they're not. Right. I'm like, shouldn't this be the other way around? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, I that uh, sorry that was kind of a a tangent. But in terms of and getting them into shape, that's kind of my that's kind of my my gig right now. Nothing nothing too outrageous yeah and that's again i would echo that it's i've i've experimented with different things and trying to sort of systematically sort of build up towards the season and i guess what i found is and and don't mistake this i'm not suggesting that my dogs are in the best shape of anybody's dogs that's for sure but we we just maintain a base level of conditioning that what i see in the early season is i'm i'm very watchful of it in that early season hunt if we're going out west just because of the things we talked about how much ground they can cover so i have a higher level of awareness on a trip like that but then when it comes when we come home and we start grouse hunting the the grouse woods are you know they're thick at that time and so it just kind of it allows me to sort of it's like this on-ramp of the season where we just sort of we go from that base level of conditioning and then they sort of work themselves into game shape by through hunting season and you know by mid-october they're sort of peak peak form and and then that continues until we sort of taper off towards the end of the season and it works for for me and my dogs and it's that's just kind of the what you do you figure out figure out what works for you but it is i know it's always a concern for people and and usually sort of breeders and and dog trainers are very uh, vocal as they should be in the early season of just sort of reminding folks to, if you haven't been putting in the work or you haven't been maintaining that base level of conditioning, when that first hunt rolls around September one, and you have the, all these, the possibility of warm weather and, and tough conditions, you really got to be, got to be careful when you cut the dogs loose for that first hunt of the year. Yeah. And here, obviously it's hot here. So right you have to mind the heat. I worry about the heat more than I do so much the distance or everything else. It's really how warm is it? And you kind of can see which, at what temperature does your dog kind of start having a, a noticeable um, change in their, in their output, whether that's duration or whatever it might be. So um, managing that the best you can cutting, you know, cutting their hair short and just having a good idea of what their capacity is and you obviously hit something that i care about very much which is just consistency yeah and that a little you don't have to do anything too crazy i don't think if you're consistent over the year um and i know we see a lot of people roading dogs and people 
um, doing that kind of thing. And it's like, if you don't have access to that, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think it goes the other way. I think not, I think I know there's people that road dogs too much and they, they'll have injuries as a result. And so there's, there's a balance to be struck in there, which is no different than us, but doing something consistently, if nothing else, just to condition their feet too, because having a dog blow a pad off or something is a, you know, that's not an enjoyable thing for anybody. So consistency, definitely, no matter what you're doing is, is the name of the game and dogs adapt way faster than people do in terms of getting in shape. So yeah, it, it doesn't take a ton. It's not like us. Um, they're, they're pretty easy to keep in good enough shape year round. And like you're saying, yeah, maybe they're not in tip top shape rolling into the season. Um, but they're also not worn down either. So mm-hmm they're in good enough shape. They kind of start and you're mindful of what they're doing and pay attention to them, pay attention to the heat. And and then they'll, you know, the, once it, once it cools down, really, then it's like, okay, right. it's a free for all. Now we don't have to worry about anything, at least for me. Um, you know, a, a, for a one day hunt, you can go as pretty much as hard and as long as you want. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting arc to the season where, you know, as the, as the dogs are getting in better and better shape, the conditions are improving until they, you know, until they fall, fall off towards the end. But that's sort of like the, the stew that comes together that sort of makes your, you know, the middle of your, or the peak of your season. We have those magical days in the field when you're in good shape, the dogs are in good shape, the conditions are right. The, the birds are there. And that's, that's what we're all building up towards every year. That is the the intersection we're all looking for. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about, we've spent an hour talking about dogs and and whatnot, which is a good thing, but I did want to, we did want to circle back and and talk a little bit about fitness for us. And we're, we're kind of segueing into that consistency being a, being a key there. And and it's one of the things that I would not suggest that I didn't know this, but sometimes it goes against my nature and I can sometimes be an all or nothing type person. But usually when I'm successful, it's because I do, I make some sort of small change or improvement and do it on a daily basis or a very regular basis. And I get a lot more results doing that than you do by thinking you're going to change overnight or do some, do some big thing. And that's, that's something that uh, working with you and Todd over the past few months or so has definitely been i've been reminded of it or it's been highlighted again and i'm i'm really referring to rucking which we can talk about yeah it's been a big addition to my fitness routine this year and looking back felt like almost nothing changed you know we we talked about it on our first interview i hadn't i hadn't been doing it and i remember we were talking about okay how do i carry the weight and we were talking about uh, like our, using our final rise vest. And I ended up finding my old deer hunting backpack. And since we spoke, I don't know, know if that was in February or whatever, but my deer hunt, my old deer hunting day pack has been, has had weight plates in it for the rest of the year. And if I'm not trail running, I am, I have been rucking, uh, every day when I'm running the dogs and it's been, uh, been a lot of fun. So <laughs> tell us all about rucking Jordan. Well, I mean, I think you just, you told us, you know, it's, um, I mean, how much weight are you carrying when you ruck? So when I first started working with you guys, we did the assessment where there, that's 20% of your body weight. 
and I think there is something about that 20% number. I know you guys had, I had seen an Instagram post at one point, so maybe you could talk about that. But for me, that's something like 37 pounds, like I weigh 185. Um, so that mm-hmm. was like 37 pounds. So I did that with the assessment and then this was in the middle of winter. I was out snowshoeing and stuff and I, I kind of, that, that's, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. Um, I mean, you can feel it is, is my point. So I backed off a little bit and I think I, I settled on like 27 and a half pounds and that was a weight that it was there, but it was, it, it didn't feel like much, you know, it wasn't straining my shoulders. You know, I looked for that sweet spot of what is a weight that I can carry that it almost feels like I'm not doing anything extra. And for me, that was it. So I, I, I use that for most of the year. And then about a month ago, I just, I kind of, I waited longer than I, sh- I was thinking about this and it just took me a while to throw another plate in there, but then I went up to 30, 32. And so probably next week I'll, I'll throw that other five on there and get up to closer to that 20% body weight. Yeah. And, and you can, and we talked about this on the first episode, you know, if you're doing it a lot, hedge toward the lighter side yeah. of things, we, we, we do, to do an assessment, you have to pick a number, right? You can't just say, well, use whatever you feel like using. It's it's not really helpful. And you don't have to do an assessment either. Right. But it it's especially like with what you're talking about, all of, you know, having this all or nothing or that you have to kill yourself to make progress. Um, assessments really for us serve that purpose to show people, hey, the work you've been putting in matters and it and it is working because this looks like this now. So we, we're not, we don't have people ruck very heavy at all. And like you're saying, 25 pounds or something, that's kind of the idea is, oh, this is this weight you can use all the time. And it, it's, it's enough of a load, but yep. it's not so light that you feel like you can't do it. You, and then there can be this idea that it makes no difference because yes. you don't, you don't really feel like it's doing anything, but with your experience, um, you, you, you know, rucking was really the kind of just this thing that you could incorporate all the time. And it had no, um, it's like, it seems like it has no impact, you know, positive or negative in terms of time setup, whatever, because if you're out walking your dogs or whatever, it's no extra anything. Um, yes. But as you know, the benefit you've gotten from that, from a seemingly passive thing is, is pretty huge. Yep. So it's, um, I guess it's, it's easier to see it once you're on the back side of it versus going into it and thinking you need to do all this really heavy stuff. Yep. And that is something that I'm all, I always am, am always fighting in the moment where if it again, if it doesn't feel like, and I know we talked about this, it doesn't feel like enough, or it doesn't feel like you're doing enough to make change, to make progress or initiate a change, then you kind of have this, like in that moment, you can kind of be like, what am I doing? You know, why am I, why am I doing this? Right. And I think we, I'm probably not alone in that, but it's the compounding effect of that little, little increase over time. And the best way I, I explained this to you, the best way I could describe how I just immediately noticed it was I kind of do this every year. I'm, I'm in the winter. I just do my hikes with my dogs and I've started 
I do, I do it on snowshoes. I make a little snowshoe trail and, and we do that. And then when the weather gets better, I will start trail running and I'll just, cause I like, I like to jog through the woods and I'll start trail running and stuff. And so, and usually the first time I actually start running versus just hiking, I, I feel, you know, you feel that winded, the summer rolls around or whatever, and you can feel the extra strain on your body. Whereas this year, I think the first time I went for a trail run this year, I did not take the dogs. I just went by myself and I went out and did six miles and it felt like, it felt like I'd been running all year long. And I mean, the only thing I could attribute that to was, was the rucking. And I think that played a significant role in it. And that was kind of like, wow, that was, it just was that it was a, you know, cool affirmation of a small change that I had made and what that, what that ultimately led to. And that was earlier this year. And now I've, I've been continuing to do, I'm either trail running or I'm rucking as I described. And I think that has, that has put me in a, a, a better physical condition than about anything I've done in the last few years. Yeah. And the, the name of the game, like we said with dogs too, is just consistency. So you, yep. you know, you did something that is you're able to do consistently and with a low propensity for injury and you know and then it's just time of of basically being exposed to that slight stressor that you've adapted to and then um you know you can you can go out and and go run or whatever and then the nice part about that is so running is more intense than than rucking right and then your your same thing your propensity for injury when you're exposed to a little bit more intensity is going to be lower also um so it's just really a it's just a super useful tool that is just uh, it's it's so simple and it like we said before people think it doesn't work because it's too simple it seems too easy it feels too easy uh until you do it and have like you said the experience you have you also obviously did some some lifting of weights and stuff, but uh, the um, which is going to help with your overall resilience too. Um, but nothing too nothing too extreme at all. Not like you, like you said, became a different person and are killing yourself, sort of thing. Yeah, um, just a real maintainable thing. Yeah, and the and the strength training side of things, that was where I was I was less much less consistent in that and you know, that was something you and I talked about over the past few months and it just I I have a harder time again my my run with my dogs is like so ingrained in my routine that like nothing really gets yeah. in the way of that because you kind of have this responsibility to the dogs and it's, it's mutually beneficial in many ways. And so figuring out ways to use that to my advantage have been have been really good for me, but carving out that extra time to get in my strength training is hard, has been harder for me. And it's not, it's definitely something I, I want to improve. And kind of as the summer went along, I figured out, I had to sort of go back to basics a little bit. I do like to use kettlebells a lot. And so I kind of had to, I've developed this little routine that is sort of my, it's my go-to routine where I do a lot of, I try to do as many compound exercises and or supersets. We could say like sort of trying to get in the most work in the shortest amount of time. And for me, kettlebells is a way is a way to do that. So I, I landed on that yeah. as far as being able to have something that I could fall back on if I was putting off workouts or whatever, but mixing in strength training is, is obviously a, 
a key component, but that's something I struggle. I struggle with more on how to, how to mix that in effectively. But where, well, what I wanted to say was a lot of the workouts that I did that were programmed by you guys, they all kind of had that similar feeling where it was, it's not that I never broke a sweat or anything, but a lot of it was, it never felt like it was again, devast like as this devastating workout, like it wasn't really hard to get mentally up for any of these workouts because I think there's a lot of strategy and science behind what you guys are programming. And that was something I really enjoyed about all of it. Yeah. You have to be consistent to get results over time. Um, and you can't crush yourself every day if you want to be really consistent, at least most people. And I mean, I think you downplay your progress a little bit because in terms of consistency with strength training, you said, well, I have a harder time getting in this groove, but here's something I'm familiar with. And the workouts that you're doing with a kettlebell, you weren't doing anything stupid. You, you were, you know, pressing, hinging, yep. squatting, lunging. And those are kind of, those are some of the things we talked about in terms of you were doing basic core movements. It was something that was accessible for you. And when you, even like you said, with you feeling like you weren't consistent, your five rep deadlift went up like 50 pounds or something on your assessment. So same thing. If you feel, well, I don't know that I was consistent enough. I don't know if this worked. I don't, but then you can see, well, did, did what you, um, is what you were doing, making a difference overall to your bottom line and the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it takes that to convince people too, that they're not crushing themselves, just stick with it and, and stay the course kind of, and then they do their assessment and they go home, oh, holy smokes, everything is better. And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. um, that's, that's literally the point. Um, but there's just a lot um, for people just in terms of logistics to get figured out for those types of things. So you found something that works for you. You were consistent with it and you had a positive end result and not getting injured, all of that good stuff. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, leaving you in a good spot to start your, to start your season. Yeah. I did. I did what I, often do is I learn something from somebody and then I sort of, I strip out little pieces and, and <laughs> sort of carve my own path in a way, which is not always the best way to go about it. I will readily admit, but what I was doing, I kind of, I kind of saw, you know, again, I saw like what you guys were programming and found this middle ground where I was like, okay, I, I can do, and really, I don't know if this will make sense to anybody, but I was the thing that was holding me back was just this mental struggle of, okay, here I've got a time to work out and then going in and, and doing the workout, having to, there's a difference between having to learn a new workout and learn new exercises. Like there's a time and a place for that. But if you're, if you're resisting working out or you feel busy or whatever, whatever the million excuses we come up with for ourselves, I just needed a path of least resistance where I could go a uh, go-to workout that I could do, just basically shut up and go do. So that was kind of in my in my back pocket, and I I really arrived at that in in talking through it with you. But it really was built around a lot of what you guys do, and and I want to talk about some of the different 
styles of work working out that we do in this program. We won't go into all the details and I and we're going to set set this up to where we can if anybody's more interested, they can they can get a look at some of these programs and try it out for themselves. So we'll we'll tee that up here shortly in a minute, but let's let's just talk quickly about the different things that you put together in the 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 workout program you're dubbing the bird shot program. Um, what are the different types of activities in there? Rucking being one of them. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the program was, you know, inspired, uh, by what you were doing because a lot of what we do, there's so many things to take into account. Some people get, um, bored of exercises, especially the ones that are with us all the time. And, um, so we need variety because people don't want to do the same thing day in, day out. But for building up to a season prep, something simple and easy, and you still used principles that we um, that we use. So yep. the 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 things that you're going to see are are rucking are one of them, and we use that in our normal program. Some very basic strength training, which was um, kind of an adapted version of your what we would call a pairing, a kettlebell pairing, yep. um, which is just you know plain Jane strength work, and then the the other character we would see in there is something we call tempo training because um, it's basically to enhance your um, uh, aerobic abilities of your slow twitch muscles and it requires very little load and not anything in terms of um, equipment so it's basically just a a two second um, you know eccentric or lowering of the weight and a two second uh, two second concentric or the the reversal so if you were squatting it'd be two seconds down you wouldn't bottom out two seconds up but you wouldn't lock out so basically you're keeping that that muscle under constant tension so it's a it's an easy way to get a good um, stimulus with with not a lot of load um, no special equipment or anything like that yeah. So increasing the time under tension with that, what, what is, and if you're getting to this, apologies for cutting you off, but what, how does that translate to like real world use? Like what does training the slow twitch fibers do for us physically? Yeah. So we have, without getting too broken down into this, but yeah. yes, we have, we have, um, a, a variety of muscle fibers and, we'll just say for the sake of this fast and slow twitch fast twitch meaning um powerful explosive type movements mm-hmm. and then slow twitch being your kind of all day um endurance. endurance yeah and so for for us being more tailored toward what guys are doing with bird hunting um there is a requisite amount of strength we need to train and in a perfect world would we do maybe some more all-encompassing things, um, maybe. But the tempo training, that type of thing, we want to basically get all we can out of our slow twitch muscles, the things that we're going to be using all day while we're following dogs and stuff. For most people, um, the, that is the the system they're going to lean on is going to be their aerobic system. So there's a couple ways we utilize to train the aerobic qualities of muscles themselves. Um, and the tempo training being the um, method we would use for the slow twitch, um, basically enhancing how well those function, how, how big those fibers are, um, helping 
helping get rid of rid of waste products in those muscles um, because you're you're forming new new capillary beds, you know, mitochondria, all that good stuff without getting too nerdy. But those are basically your all day muscles, you know. Yep. Um, and so that is that's the main reason why we see something like that in there. Also, like you said, with the intersection of um, accessibility, uh, equipment required, that sort of thing. And I think your experience was was really beneficial for for us because we get a good look at, you know, what what's what's reasonable for this person. What's a reasonable thing to do that we can get them a really good outcome. Yeah. So we have to say thanks for you because you <laughs> you know you took some of those those principles, applied them to yourselves and or to yourself, and obviously you you, you didn't do anything too outrageous and had still have a really good outcome yeah that's if if we could have that for everybody it's just fantastic right yeah and that was you know again if if anybody's thinking seriously about this or um just curious about like you know i have a pretty good home gym setup i've got i've got a pull-up bar i sort of have a a a weight rack where i can you know i can i'm in a bench i can do barbells but i also i conveniently i mean i had kettlebells you guys mix some of that in i had these trx straps that i haven't hardly use them in the last decade but i use them a ton with what you guys were doing because that was a lot of a lot of inverted rows and just different things with the trx strap how do how do you see the when you when working in those trx straps you know there's different ways they were real popular back i don't know when that was but um, i'm not sure how popular they still are but clearly people are still using them myself included but you can kind of you can change the angles and sort of like your body's the lever and you can change how much resistance or how hard exercises are by lengthening the straps or changing your feet position like why do you guys like incorporating those in the program kind of for the reasons that you mentioned we like to scale things as necessary yeah and the TRX strap is such a beautiful simple way of doing that and so you can take something like a row and your foot position, you can change your foot position and you change the angle that you're at yep. and you can make the exercise easier or harder depending on where you're at. Um, and it's just, it's quick, it's easy. Um, and it's just same thing. Like you said, you, you don't need a lot of equipment. Yep. Um, low low barrier to entry in terms of you don't have to buy the trx brand right um you could get a you could get a i mean even the ones i have are are not and you can get a you can get a nice piece of equipment that is really versatile um and so easily adjustable um to accommodate kind of wherever the person's at with the given exercise they're doing so We like, we like simplicity, we like economy of training time, and we like um, versatility. You know, we don't want somebody to have to go do this really specific thing to where it's high cost and has this one use, and we, we try to avoid that. So the, the adjustability on all fronts with that TRX strap are just so good. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a great one for the, the tempo training, as you mentioned, where we're doing these sort of slow repetitions. Um, it's an instable platform by nature. So you're, you're, you can really increase the low just by doing like a slow inverted row, or you can, you know, you can do push ups and pec fly. You can do all kinds of stuff on those and they're, they're fun to, they're fun to work with. 
Yeah, and they um, same thing. It's just it's something anybody can can use or get, and it can it continues to have use. It's not a, a piece of equipment that you outgrow. So no matter where you're at, if you're just getting started or you're well seasoned, you can get use out of it. Which is just there's not a lot of things like that, I guess. Yeah. All right. So a couple more things. We're gonna we're gonna close it here pretty quickly, but. One of the other modules in the in the little birdshot program is it's you call it the birdshot GPP and it, and what does the GPP stand for? Does that have to do with the exercises? Because it's basically like a kind of like a compound superset program. Yeah. So GPP stands for General Physical Preparedness. Okay. Okay. And that's why you see that amalgamation of kind of. Uh, general utility type movements, nothing, nothing crazy specific. Um, so what we're looking to do with GPP style workouts is um, exactly that is general physical preparedness. So it's going to be a sort of moderate intensity, um, a lot of them loaded type movements that you're going to kind of just continuously cycle through. And part of what we want to get with that is just exposing a variety of tissues to different planes of movement, um, especially loaded, but in kind of a low risk way. Um, nothing's crazy heavy. So you're going to see things like, uh, you know, like um, carries, for instance, are a good, um, good example. Yeah, the farmer where... carrier, the suitcase carrier. What's the, I mean, I've done that, that exercise a lot over the years and it's, I think it's kind of in that sweet spot. It's like you're just walking around with a weight. It's not all that difficult. Obviously, you can use heavier weights or not, but you're putting a load on your on your core and then walking around. Is that is that basic, the basic idea behind something like that? Yeah. So the, I mean, they, they both have different uses. So like a farmer's, you can load a fair bit heavier. Yep. Um, but both of them to do with, um, you can't. It, they'll they'll both help with your gait, especially the uh, the suitcase carry. And so you're you know you can't if you pick up something heavy in one hand, you can't fall over sideways and cross your legs over as you walk. Mm -hmm. And so you it can just help getting some good um, good patterns of movement. Essentially, when you add just that little bit of load, you're going to be like you said, holding that core up. Um, and then in terms of how you're walking, you can't, you know, jam your leg way out in front of you and hit on your heel. Yeah. Uh, you just, you kind of have to be upright. You have to take a little bit shorter steps and that kind of starts to set up just a good general gait pattern also. Um, and then you get the benefit too of, like I said, exposing your various tissues to various loads and um, in a useful pattern, picking something up and carrying it is a pretty useful pattern, whether that's with one hand, two hands, whatever it might be. Right. Um, so you have, you have good, good translation to just general human usefulness, I guess. Got it. All right. And then what is the deal with zone two training? And I'll let you, I'll let you explain, <laughs> explain what that yeah. is. I feel like it's getting pretty popular at this point, but it, it will fit in with everything else we've talked about in that it is a, it's a place where you can be, you can be in zone two and not feel like you're accomplishing very much, but in fact, you probably are. 
You, yeah, you hit hit the nail on the head. So zone two, we're talking about heart rate zones. It's um, for, it's going to be different for everybody. Mm-hmm. So depending on your fitness level, it would be based off of it would be a percentage of your maximal heart rate. But the simplest terms is it would be cardio above, you know, just regular walking or something to where you were, but you're still able to have a conversation or we say a conversational pace. So you could, or another simple way would be if you can breathe in and out through your nose for the duration of the event. So easy enough where you can still breathe in and out of your nose. And the reason for that is that is those lower heart rate zones are where our aerobic system is largely built. Um, the really high intensity stuff gets you trained to use your, your anaerobic system, which, you know, it has a place, Mm -hmm. but for, for the majority of people that want to be walking around, have more endurance. And even if you go way down the wormhole, really high level athletes, um, endurance athletes, they still do a ton of zone one and zone two training. It's just, they're so adapted that you know, their zone two training might be a seven minute mile. Um, it's looking at the scale of intensity and how it applies to each person, but that zone two place or breathing in and out of your nose, um, which we achieve largely with rucking because it's, we're adding a load to walking, but it's not going to be as high of a heart rate as for most people as running, um, is where you're going to get a lot of your, um, cardiac, adaptation so you're going to get um your you know your cardiac output is one of the bigger ones we look at so it's moving enough blood that the the heart has to it stretches a little more and it gets more more efficient in terms of um how much blood it's putting out and over time that that's when you start to see people that have a like a lower resting heart rate things like that because their cardiovascular system becomes more efficient um and then on top of that, the aerobic system is really the the foundation for which you build kind of the whole house of of fitness in our in our opinion. And there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff coming, you know, like you're saying, it's getting very popular. But mm-hmm. the aerobic system is also the one that drives adaptation in general. So if you have a well-trained aerobic system, you get more out of your strength training, you get more out of all of your training because that is where the recovery happens and you get your adaptations from training as a result of recovery. If you can't recover, you're not going to get as much out of your workouts. So the the zone two world is one that we play in a whole lot, yeah. um, you know, hours a week if we can. Um, and like you said, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't feel like it's enough, but over time, as your capacity grows, the the rate at which you're moving or, or whatever you want to look at, whatever metric, usually it's speed, um, that speed is going to grow. So you're still in zone two, but maybe you're running 10-minute miles in zone two. And yes. whatever it might be, that capacity is going to grow. It doesn't, it's not reflective of an exertion level as, as so much as a heart rate. And hopefully, if you're doing smart stuff training, that um, is going to shift where you're faster and faster and faster, but you're exerting yourself at kind of the same 
um, degree. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and it, it really kind of sums up a lot of this conversation. It's kind of like the the real world definition of Pareto's principle, eighty twenty. Like you just you you get a lot of results out of that space, and it's not a hard space to be in. You know, you can sit on the exercise bike and watch Netflix or something, and pretty reasonably stick in zone two. And I do it when I do a lot of my trail running. I this year more than ever because of talking to you and working with you guys I intentionally I think I would have a tendency to creep up into zone 3 quite a bit this year I made a a concerted effort to stay in zone 2 pretty much exclusively and it's obviously very easy to do uh, it's enjoyable to me I'm outside in the woods and just going for my runs in zone 2 last week I because I because you and I were chatting I knew this conversation was coming up I one day I was just like oh, I'm just going to crank it up a little bit and try to get into zone three. And I'm using, I'm using my Garmin watch, which the, I know the wrist based heart rate monitors are not the highest quality compared to like a chest strap or something, but, um, it's just, that's what I have. And I think a lot of people would have something like that, but I pushed up into zone three and I shaved like, it was like a minute or 90 seconds off of my usual miles. And it hardly felt like I was trying. So I just, again, a little anecdotal thing, but it just felt to me like, all of that baseline I had put down with the zone two running, it allowed me to move into those higher, that higher zone and just sort of do it without, without feeling like it was a ton more exertion, but it's just kind of interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, it's one of those things people have to kind of proof for themselves. Yeah. We know it to be true. And like you're saying, we know that it puts you in a place where you um, respond better to higher intensity training you can you can do more higher intensity training um, when the time is right for that. But your experience is it's one that we hope everybody has where they they realize that that like you said you can you can sit on a bike and watch Netflix and cruise, make sure you're breathing in and out of your nose, yep. and it does matter and it does make a difference. Yeah. Um, and if you do it enough, that speed at which you're moving is going to change over time. Yeah. Um, but it's until people see that that result that they really buy in for a lot of people anyway. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's just it does not feel hard, and but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's uh, that's maybe the biggest biggest takeaway for me. And again, not something that I that I didn't know, but I guess I need to be reminded of that fairly often. So uh, everybody, I mean, everybody does. It's not just you. It's yeah. our, I think it's just kind of in our nature to, yes, to just feel like we, it must, it must be hard to work if it's exercise. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You got it. All right, man. Well, if anybody is still with us and they, they want to learn more about the little birdshot protocol, um, you guys have generously put together kind of a free two weeks for people to go in and take a look and check it out. We talked about a lot of it here. There's obviously much more to it, but that link will be in the show notes um, so they can access it through the birdshot link that I'll, that I'll put out there. Anything else you want to say about that and or how it works? Uh, no, I just, you know, for the people, if they, if they want to check it out two weeks for free and you can, you know, at least take some of that and then apply it to themselves. And like I said, even if nobody trains with us, just know that it'll work and, and use it. You know, we want everybody to be in, we want everybody to be like Ben O. Williams, be 90 and chasing bird dogs around. Heck yeah, dude. Yep. That's, that's exactly <laughs> it. We hit on a lot of the high notes and um, there was, a, there was a lot in this conversation that would, that would sort of sum up, 
what's in the program and yeah get out there and start rucking and do a little zone two and let's all get ready for the season you got it awesome buddy well thanks again for your time uh best of luck to you and the dogs this season you and i will will keep in touch and thanks for joining us once again on the bird shot podcast buddy yeah thanks for having me and uh have a good one thanks man Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.